Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It was good to have a little country gospel today, so appreciate the acoustic uh, plus piano uh, this morning. It was great. Uh, it's good to be creative and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, that are new and old. That was great. Well, today we're going to be uh, in the book of Philippians, and <clears throat> just as a reminder, uh, at the end of our service today, uh, we're going to have a brief business session where we're going to vote uh, on the worship minister search committee. So if you're a guest today, uh, thank you for being here. There'll be a time at the end of the service where I invite you uh, to either stay uh, and just hang out for a few minutes, or if you want to go and meet Randy, our Connect minister, and our guest central, he'd love to meet you and talk to you. So just be prepared for that uh, at the end of the service. Well, today uh, we are beginning a, a new series in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to take that for a number of weeks uh, ahead. Uh, I will not be like James Montgomery Boyce, who is the famous pastor uh, of a church in Philadelphia that preached through Romans uh, over seven years. Seven years. He went through Romans. Uh, but uh, today uh, we're going to start in Philippians. So if you got a Bible, you can turn there towards the back of the Bible. Uh, and it's before Colossians. Uh, so you can find it there. But uh, the church at Philippi was uh, actually uh, founded um, if you want to know the backstory a little bit, in Acts chapter 16, so if you're one of those note takers that likes to make connections, uh, Acts chapter 16 is actually when Paul uh, went to Philippi. He helped establish the church there. There was a lady named Lydia. Uh, she was a wealthy lady, sold purple, uh, like garments and things. Uh, and so she uh, kind of financed, housed, hosted uh, the church, was a key part of the launch of this church at Philippi, and, and that is found in Acts chapter 16. Well, Philippi is a unique place. Uh, it, it's a unique location because uh, it became a Roman colony um, after the Battle of Philippi. They were just as creative in the ancient world as we are today. Uh, the Battle of Philippi uh, occurred in 42 BC. So, we kind of look at dates and biblical times as it's like so far back. But think about that. 42 BC was about <clears throat> 35 to 40 years before Jesus was born. Okay, uh, newsflash, Jesus was not born in zero. Okay, he wasn't born in zero. Um, but Philippi was established as a Roman colony in 42 BC. So Jesus is born sometime, you know, 3 BC-ish. Uh, and, and then in 30 AD, so when Jesus, uh, perhaps after he had already died, uh, was resurrected, in 30 AD, the Roman Empire forced a bunch of Italians, because where's Rome? Italy. Very good. I know we're Americans and not great at geography, but that was an easy one. So the Roman Empire, centered in Rome, Italy, they forced a bunch of Italians to move to Philippi. And so in 30 AD, that happened. And these Italians uh, got land and were then not just given land, but they said, you have all the rights of as if you were living in Italy. So your land and everything as if you were living in Italy. It's called the italic clause, not italics, but italic clause. And so they are in essence ex expats. That's what we call people who live permanently in a different area, a different country. They're expats. So that was in 30 AD. And then along comes 
the Apostle Paul, sometime around A.D. 49 or 50, that's Acts chapter 16, A.D. 49 or 50, uh, Paul comes along on his mission. Uh, we say as a missionary journey, but it was just Paul living life uh, as a missionary. And so he goes to Philippi and establishes this church there with the help of Lydia and others in 42 AD. Oh, excuse me, 49 or 50 AD. And then some time goes by. Ten years goes by, actually. Ten years after Paul helped establish the church at Philippi, he writes this letter. Somewhere in 60 or 61 AD. So I want you to think back to 10 years ago, 2012, 2013. Can you think of a significant event that happened in your life in 2012, 2013? For you guys, it might be slightly tougher. For you guys, it'll be real tough. So just think about 10 years, what happened? Well, I was thinking about this week, and so I pulled this out. Because I have photos on this from 2009, because I'm one of those people. And so I scrolled all the way to 2012, 2013. Well, that was actually the first time I took a group on a mission trip to Vancouver, British Columbia. We went in December of 2012 with our choir, the church I was serving at at the time. And then in 2013, we took a bunch of high school, college students, uh, did all kinds of stuff. And now, 10, 11 years later, we still have a connection with some of those folks, some of those churches. Uh, the names have changed. Uh, some of the churches that we worked with then uh, actually aren't there. And there are some new churches that have popped up that we've uh, gotten partnerships with. And, and so I want to kind of help you think about time and why time is important. Because 10 years has passed since he's had really direct contact to this church. But he's still, that church is still in our heart. And he's getting reports from others. He's seeing what they're doing. And then he writes them this letter 10 years after the church is established. And, and this book, if you know much about church life, people often associate this book with joy. It's the book about joy. And it is. Uh, the book is centered in joy, but it's also about the gospel, uh, about the good news of Jesus Christ, about that you and I have an opportunity to establish a personal relationship with the God of the universe who sent his only son to this earth to, to identify with us perfectly, to never sin, to never fall short, to never do anything wrong. He was perfect in every way. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin and then he rose three days later to conquer sin and death so that you and I could also conquer sin and death. And that's what this first section of his letter, we call it a book, but it's a letter. That's what this first section is about, about living a life centered on the gospel. What does it look like to be a person on mission with God? What does it look like to live a life devoted to Jesus Christ? Well, Paul commends, he affirms, encourages gives support to the church at Philippi because they are actually living the right kind of way. And so look with me, if you will, at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. 
Uh, in our day, we tell people who we are at the end of our letters. In the ancient world, they told people who they were at the beginning of their letters. Okay, that's why this is written differently than we write today. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul writes this letter, as you might guess, uh, when things aren't going so great for him. Uh, he's actually uh, being detained at the moment uh, when he writes this letter. Uh, some people believe he's in prison. Uh, some people believe he's under house arrest. Uh, those are very different things uh, if, if you have experienced either one of those. Uh, house arrest is very different than prison, uh, but let's just say he was being held captive. Uh, he, he had limited uh, mobility in his life. And so he writes this letter uh, to the Philippians uh, while he's in captivity. And, and Paul introduces himself as Paul and not Saul, which was his birth name, Saul of Tarsus, uh, his Hebrew name. He introduces himself as Paul because this is a Gentile. These are Gentile people, not Jewish people. And so he introduces himself as Paul, which means little. And he says, Paul and Timothy, you know Timothy, his young ministry associate. There's two books of the Bible named after him. And so he has Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Now, that word servant isn't the guy who helps put the chairs away. That's not the third grade Sunday school teacher. No, servant of Christ here is the word doulos, means slave, bond slave. And Paul, throughout his writings, he declares how he's exchange the, the bonds of sin, the, the bondage, the slavery of sin to be a slave to righteousness for Christ's sake, to be a, a slave to Christ. So he introduces himself not as Paul the great missionary, not as Paul the guy who helped establish your church, not your founding pastor, no, Paul the slave to Christ, the, the servant of all. And so to you, the saints in Christ, in Philippi. He writes to all the saints, all the people who would claim the name of Jesus in Philippi. And, and a little small thing, because most of the time we don't pay attention closely to these little introductions. We want to skip straight to the meat of the, of the letter. But look at what he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. There's a great little lesson here. 
that our life in Christ eclipses our address. Our life in Christ matters more than where you're from or where you live. We take great pride in being Texans, or at least I do, and Americans, and somehow we think God loves us more than the rest of the world, and that couldn't be further from the truth. We all need to recognize very specifically that our relationship with Jesus Christ, our life in Christ matters more than our address or our position. And so he writes to all the saints who are in Christ and to the overseers and deacons. The overseers were the, the bishops, the, the elders, the shepherds of the church. We might today use the title pastor. And all the deacons, those servants of the church as laid down in Acts chapter 6. And so he begins with this little introduction and declares how grateful he is in this first part of the, his partnership with the church at Philippi. They're an example of how we should think about gospel matters. They're an example of how we should live a life in Christ. And so today, that's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about how we should live in light of the gospel. How should we live in light of our relationship with Jesus Christ? How should we live knowing the good news of Jesus? Well, the first thing is something that he launches with. He says, I thank my God. He's thankful, and maybe we need to be thankful. If we want to live in light of the gospel, live in such a way that, that honors the Lord and honors others, then we need to be thankful. He's, he's thankful to my God. God is personal to him. He has a relationship with the Lord. God is not some distant higher power. No, he, he knows God. He knows God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he's thankful for this church and the partnership. He's thankful for the work among the church. He's thankful for the work among you. He uses that, and it's not just that God is working in you, but God is working around you, among you. And it's something that I think we, we lose sight of today. We, we forget about. It's hard for us to be thankful sometimes. I was watching a couple of the football games yesterday. I, I caught most of the Colorado-Oregon game and all of the Texas-Baylor game. And, and both of those games uh, were resounding victories for those two schools, for, for Oregon and Texas. I have to take my opportunities when I can. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting to me how difficult it is for our culture to be thankful. I, I, I watched... The interviews of the coaches, the, the victorious coaches, and they weren't that satisfied. They blew the other team out. And they talked about the things they need to improve on. Now, again, you could say, well, that's just trying to be humble and all that. Baloney, they killed them. <laughs> I'm thankful that my quarterback is better than yours. Our offensive line and defensive line destroyed them, right? You, I'm, I'm grateful that we have players that can execute at every level. Our third string prevented them from scoring, right? Those kinds of things I'm thankful. But we often, and I'm guilty of this too, we look at something that's wonderful and good and we just want to pick it apart instead of being thankful. Th thankful 
And, and, and Paul is reminding us that we need to be thankful and not so conditioned to only look at how things should be better. That, that's a message for me as it is for you, as more for me than for you. Because there are some folks around here that I'm extremely thankful for. I, I talked about service last week and, and investing in your spiritual growth and how we serve. And, and I mentioned things like, you know, Sunday school for kids or preschoolers on Wednesday night. And, and, and some of you are like, well, I just I like mm, talking to kids. Whew. So you think, well, I don't need to serve because that's not me. But, but maybe you're the type of person who doesn't like to talk to people. I'm going to tell you, I'm thankful for some folks in our church that do some amazing things that don't require talking. Like we have a, a guy in our church that sets up those yellow cones. So if you're a guest today and you parked out front right here, like the best spot in the house, because that yellow cone was there and those flags, well, we have a guy, one guy who does that. And, and he has less hair than me. He's not a young fellow. I didn't say this illustration earlier, but I talked in the first service about Hawaii being a state in 1959, but he was alive in 1959. <laughs> and then we've got a group of folks that, that monitor our cameras around campus on Sunday mornings to help us and kind of just roam the campus to make sure we're safe and secure. Like th those are amazing people. I'm thankful for their service. Paul is reminding us that he's thankful for the church. And so we need to be a people, as people who live in light of the gospel, we need to be thankful for one another, thankful to those who serve, thankful, who are, thankful to those who are partners in the gospel. And then he, he says perhaps one of the two most famous lines, or maybe three in all of Philippians, Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in your life, and so you and I need to be consistent in our kingdom work. God is going to be faithful. God is going to be faithful to complete the good work in you. And so this is an encouragement for you to be faithful because it's easy for us to be unfaithful in our relationship with God. He calls us to be consistent, to, to trust that God is gonna carry it through. God's not finished with you yet. He's still molding you, shaping you, forming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You're on the journey, but you haven't gotten to the destination yet. And so he cares for them. He longs for them to, to keep going in the gospel ministry, to, to carry on what the church should be doing. And he's excited for them because they've been partners of his. He, he uses two words, partner and partaker. A partner in the gospel and, and a partaker of grace, including his imprisonment um, and the truth of the gospel, the defender of the gospel. He's, they've defended the gospel. They, they've walked beside him, even from a distance, when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They've been committed to kingdom work. They've defended the gospel. That's the phrase we get apologetics from in Christianity. We're, we're defending the faith we're standing firm on the truth of God's word and sharing that with the world that may not believe. 
You're, you're a partaker of that. You're, you're a partner in the gospel. Continue investing in kingdom work. Live a life filled with grace. And he calls us to be people who participate with one another, to be partakers in that. And he uses this wonderful little expression as he declares kind of their work. Look at verse 8. He says, for God is my witness. You ever like called God as your witness to somebody, usually in an argument? Like the progressive commercials recently where they throw the red flag and they pull the video camera out. There was one at the dinner table and sweet potatoes or something. And then the one recently is about the neighbor invites a neighbor to watch the game. And the daughter says, you don't like them, mom. Oh, wow. I never said that. Oh, let's have the replay, please. God is my witness. He, he wants them to understand the depth of his love and, and appreciation for them and their partnership how they've walked alongside him. And so he says, as God is my witness, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus. This is kind of a, truthfully, a gross illustration. Because what he's saying is here that, that, that I long for you with the innards of Jesus, with the guts of Jesus. That's the, that's the literal translation. It, it's the same idea that Jesus looked on Jerusalem with compassion. Like from within his belly, his intestines, he longed for them. He had compassion over them. That's the same idea, Paul. He, he's so, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> he so loves them. I'm going to say it. He was so moved by them. Uh, some of you will get it. Some of you won't. Um, by, by them that he longed to be near them. Get someone to explain it later, okay? That, that he wanted to express his appreciation for their partnership, to be close to them. Because they had been consistent. They had been consistent in their partnership with the gospel. They had defended the faith. They had been people of grace. And they knew that God's work wasn't done in them. And so if you and I want to live in the light of the gospel, let me encourage you to be thankful, to be consistent in kingdom work, knowing that God's not done with you yet. And then pray for one another. Gladly pray for each other. He, he's happy to pray for them. He, he wants to pray for them. He wants to lift them before Heavenly Father and, and bring them before the throne of God. And he prays two things for them, which are often different than what you and I might pray for each other. He prays first that their love would abound. Let your love abound. That that love would be discerning. That that love would, would overflow like a, a pot of water boiling over. That love would know the things that are excellent. Our students play a game sometimes, good, better, best. They do a lot of trading and they run around town like crazy people. And they get the best thing. And sometimes it's big, right? There's a big thing. And sometimes big is best, right? We think that about Texas. 
until we talk to Alaska. Right? Bigger is better. So sometimes best is, is most expensive. Sometimes best is rarest, unique. But Paul is praying that their love would abound so they would know what is best, what is excellent, what is right and true, what is holy and just, what is honoring to one another. And that they would walk into eternity the right way. Not that they would love one another and their love would abound, but he prays that they would walk into eternity in the right way. Look at what he says. He says, so that you would be pure, in verse 10, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Well, what's the day of Christ? The day of Christ is either the day Jesus returns or the day you go to meet Jesus. That's his prayer, that you would be pure and blameless and that you would be ready for the day you enter eternity. I'm going to be honest, most of my prayers are not like either of these two things. Mine are much more practical and mundane. Like, keep the boys safe. Mm, that's not a very biblical prayer. It's a good parent prayer. Right? Help one of, my do, one of mine do great at his new job. That's a pretty mundane prayer. It's a good prayer, but, but not, not let your love abound and be ready for eternity. Help them win, whatever that means. At life, at a match. I, I look at this, and if I want to live in light of the gospel, perhaps my own prayer life needs to change a little bit. And what we pray, not that saying those things aren't good, that we shouldn't pray for the health of our friends and family, that we shouldn't pray for their safety and protection, that we shouldn't pray that their life uh, navigates in a certain way, but are we, are we praying gospel-type prayers for those in our lives, for those in our family, those in our church, those at our workplace, in our school, are we praying those types of prayers? As Paul launches this letter to the church at Philippi, he gives us a tremendous clue into what a gospel-centered life looks like. And so my prayer is that we are people who are thankful. We are people who are consistently engaged in gospel work, whether that's going across the world or across the street to share the gospel, whether that's teaching eighth graders or standing at the door greeting, or that's helping the homeless, that's engaging in your workplace conversations and turning them to spiritual matters, that you would be consistent in kingdom work and that you, your prayer life would focus on things of eternity. That's the calling for us today. That's the calling for us to, to live a life centered on the gospel. And so this morning I want to invite you, if if as Paul says, my God, and God is my witness, if, if you this morning don't have that personal kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you don't have a personal relationship with God, you, you can't say my God, you can say God or Jesus, but you can't say my God or my Jesus. I want to invite you this morning 
to allow God to start a work in you today. That's what he says. For these people in Philippi, God had started that work because they had a relationship with God. But I want to invite you today to have God begin a work in you by receiving Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in him. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And when we do that, everybody's going to stand. And I invite you to come forward and say, you know what? I, I want God to be my God. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to understand who Jesus is and how I can live a life focused on eternity and not just the mundane of the world. I want to invite you to do that. Many of you in this room have made that decision. And so perhaps this morning your invitation is simply this, uh, Lord, is my life defined by the gospel? Is, is my life look like? Does I have, do I have evidence, as Paul says here in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness? Is there fruit? Has my life produced something that shows gospel-centeredness, that shows that I am connected to Jesus Christ, that I'm a, a partner in grace? And maybe you think back 10 years, and maybe the 10 years was the last time really God did anything in your life. And you need to renew that passion and that spirit of God's connection, your connection to God. Because we're called to be people of righteousness, not for our own sake, not for our own glory, but for the glory and the praise of God. And so this morning, let's be people who live gospel-centered lives. Will you bow with me?